It's really good to be back in Clarksville, and it's really good to be back at CPC. Uh, we were in, our family was in Florida for summer conference, and then we were in uh, Korea for a few weeks visiting my wife's family. And then last week we were visiting a church in Dixon, Tennessee, Redeemer Pres, and got to preach there, and it was great. But it's great to be back here. I think a lot of people are feeling that today, I think. Um, if you're new or you're visiting, I'm Will Cody, and I'm the um, RUF, that's the campus ministry for the PCA, campus minister at Austin P. And when I have the opportunity to come up here and preach, we've been preaching through the, the epistle of James, this letter from um, one of the leaders of the early church. And um, James wrote this letter to a community of struggling Christians, um, probably in the, in the 40s or the 50s AD. And he wrote this letter because he wants them to persevere in all the various trials that meet them. And these trials uh, that all Christians experience, the one we talk about today is one that we experience as well. James wants us, he wants them to grow in wisdom and maturity and joy and faith in Jesus Christ. So the trial this morning here as we get into chapter 4, um, in, um, in James chapter 4, the trial that we, we are looking at today might be called, might call it the trial of passion. The trial of passion. Uh, what's going on and what's going on even under the surface when we desire something so much that we will do anything to get it? And what does it look like to persevere in this trial? If you have your Bible, it's going to be on the screen as well. In your Bibles, it's on page, the ones in the pews. We have, it's on page 1012, if you want to turn there. But let's read and let's hear God speak to us about this trial of passion. So James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The grass withers, flower fades, and the word of God, it stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray you'd uh, help us to expose all these places in us that uh, are not humble, these places in us where we need your grace and we need your healing. Would you show these to us so that we can ask for help and we'd be humbled before you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So when I was in elementary school and middle school, my family had a lot of pets. So at one point we had four cats and one dog, and these were all like outside animals. We didn't have them in the house, that would have been nuts. But uh, our dog, Max, he was a great dog. He was this Cocker Spaniel. They were really popular back in the 90s. But Cocker Spaniel, cute dog, nice dog, gentle dog. He was always good with our cats, very cuddly. 
And they all lived kind of on the back porch. Um, and if you know Max, if you got to know Max, as I did, you would find out that Max is a dog of passion. Uh, he hated passionately, and he loved passionately. Um, and the things that he hated the most were squirrels. Uh, they would just laugh at him all day, make that squirrely laughing sound in the backyard at him. And if I ever saw there was a squirrel in our backyard, I would, just, I would yell, Max, squirrel! And he would be in the, in the uh, porch, he would just jump up and just dart out the, dog, the little dog door, going out and looking for a squirrel. And he never caught one, as far as I know. But they would always, like, you know, just get out in time, and then they'd shake their tails at him and laugh at him. And he hated them so much. Um, but he also loved passionately, too. Uh, the thing that he loved most actually almost got him killed one day. Well, I'll save that story for another day. But his second biggest love was um, Bones. He's a classic dog. John, uh, <laughs> I was say John? Uh, <laughs> Max. John's my son's name. He's a classic dog, Max. Um, and one time, my mom gave him this, ham, this big ham bone. It was like twice the size of his head almost. And he was just going to town on it on our back porch. And I walked, out there, I walked out there to get something or do something. And suddenly, I heard this sound that I'd never really heard before. It was Max growling. And I turned around, and Max was clenched on this bone, staring at Big Bird, one of our cats, who was just walking by, growling at her. And... Um, she like, was frozen, and then she made one step to like, go away from him, and then he like, jumps off the bone, starts, he's looking he's going to tear her apart, and then he comes back to the bone, and but she was fine, but came back to the bone, and he's just gripping onto this bone, and I thought, this is so weird. What's gotten into Max? And I even like, moved closer to him, put my hand out, and he started growling really menacingly, even at me. I'm his best friend. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is crazy. So I get my dad, and we're kind of figuring out what are we going to do about Max before we don't want him to hurt a cat, we don't want him to hurt one of us. Um, and then I had this big brain, genius idea of how to get Max away from this bone. Anybody guess what I did? I said, squirrel, Max, squirrel. <laughs> and he jumped up and ran out and just left his bone behind. I completely forgot about this bone. So I went and I took the bone while he was out there looking for squirrels. I took his bone and I put it in the trash and Max came back a few moments later uh, looked around for a moment for his bone and then he just kind of looked like he forgot about it and we had our old Sweet, cuddly Max back. <laughs> so Max loved this thing. He loved this bone so passionately that he did not care what it took to keep it. He would threaten Big Bird. Big Bird. Big Bird. She's the matriarch of, the, of our pets. He'd even threaten Big Bird. He'd even, his best friend, he'd even growl and maybe even bite me if I threatened this bone. So James, in our text, he is describing a similar thing that's happening in this community that James writes to. This community that James writes to was um, having some issues. There were people quarreling. There were people fighting. There were people growling at each other. And rather than just tell them to stop, James go, wants to go deep, and he wants to diagnose the problem that is hindering and hurting this community. And it's a problem that affects all of us to some degree. We're all going to experience we all do experience, have experienced, will experience this trial, even today. The big idea over this whole text that we're going to see is that God is gracious to the humble. And if God is gracious to the humble, then there's three things that we should do in response. If God is gracious to the humble, if he exalts the humble, then we should recognize our idols, we should repent to Jesus, and we should reap his grace. That's going to be my last three R's, right? Recognize our idols, repent to Jesus, and reap his grace. So first, James wants us to recognize our 
idols. Look with me in verses 1 through 3. James writes, we're just going to go through this text and talk about it. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So apparently this community is suffering from conflicts and fighting and quarreling among the members of this church, of this community, of this, you know, among the families in this community, among the friends in this community. And James says he knows what's going on. He knows what's going on when there's conflict and fighting. And he's going to diagnose this deeper issue than mere fighting and quarreling. He says, the fighting and quarreling among you, among y'all, this is a second person plural, is, is because of the passions that are within you individually, inside of your body. Literally, it says, inside the members of your body, inside of you. So what's going on inside of me is causing conflict outside with other people. What's going on here is leading to and causing conflict outside among people. And James is saying, don't miss, here's what he said, this is just really interesting. He's saying, don't miss this opportunity to peer into your own hearts when conflict and quarreling arise. Because fighting isn't actually the problem. Hating someone isn't really the problem here. Grudges that we hold aren't really the problem. Those are just the symptoms, James says, of something deeper inside of us. The issue, James says, is that we are desiring and we're coveting something, and when something gets in our way, you murder them in your hearts. We murder them with our words, criticism, maybe behind their backs, maybe sniping comments, or even worse, in the hopes of getting it, getting what we desire. Now, this is some wisdom. This is some good, simple, obvious wisdom from James. How many of our conflicts arise from this? Someone getting in the way of something I want. How many of our conflicts are all, almost all, all of them, maybe? I want something, I need something, I'm waiting for something, and someone gets in the way. Or someone takes it. And I don't like it. And I am going to do whatever it takes to get them out of the way. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it back. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure this never happens again, and that person is not in my way. It doesn't take this from me. Well, the Bible has a word for what's going on here when that happens. When we lash out in anger or frustration at people uh, because they took taken something or they're threatening something, like Max, that we want. That is called idolatry. That's called idolatry. I am an idol worshiper. I'm proved to be an idol worshiper when I do that. If there is something that is so important to me that it means that I am going to tear someone down, that, that is an idol. I am worshiping this thing. Uh, maybe when you hear the word idol, you think of, I think, naturally, what movie do we think of? Anybody? I think of Indiana Jones and that little thing at the beginning of it. Uh, if you know the Bible a little bit, you know that the Bible, is, especially the Old Testament, is filled with idols. Um, the, the golden calf in Exodus, uh, Baal. Um, the Philistines had an idol. I forget his name right now, but there's a statue, may remember? The, they had the statue that kept getting falling down. That was their idol. Dagon, thank you. Um, but we still worship idols today. Um, idols are anything that we give ourselves to and sacrifice for 
Anything that we give ourselves to and sacrifice for, and this thing, whatever it is, this thing is finally going to make me safe. This thing is finally going to make me acceptable. This thing that I give myself to is finally going to make myself worthy. It's going to fulfill me in some way. That's how idols have always worked. That's how they work in the Old Testament. That's how they work today. And it makes sense if this is true. If I feel like this thing is going to give me worth, safety, um, acceptability, then it makes sense. It makes sense that I am going to fight for this thing. It makes sense that I'm not going to let anyone tell me what to do with this, and I'm going to let no one get in my way, not even God. And it makes sense then that God would not give me what I want. If I have an idol and I pray, God, give me this idol, that makes no sense that I would pray for that. Why would I do that? I want God away. I want this idol near. And it makes sense that even if I were to ask for this idol, as, as James says here, God's not going to give it to me if he loves me. He's not going to give me a rival to, to my heart for him. This is why James equate, uh, he equates what he's talking about here with adultery. Um, and the, there's a very common theme throughout the whole Bible that God is our husband. We are his bride, and he gives himself for us. Uh, in verse 4 and 5, he calls it adultery. And he's not talking about adultery, husband and wife adultery. He's talking about adultery, un- spiritual unfaithfulness to him. Adultery with these idols. Um, that when we find ourselves, whenever we find, whenever we find ourselves fighting, um, arguing, quarreling, hating people in our hearts, that points to a place in our lives where we are not trusting that God will take care of us. We're not trusting that God values us, that God loves us, that God rules over us. But our idol will. We want our idol to rule over us. The message we hear from our idols is, do whatever it takes to keep me. Do whatever it takes to attain me. Whatever it takes. This is where sins, if you trace sins down, I think all sins, you can find all sins, are, you can trace them back down to some idol that we have in our heart. All sins are born out of some kind of idol, something we need alongside God, something we need greater than God to keep us safe, to make us acceptable, to give us a sense of worth and purpose. Um, And you might have heard this before, but this is probably the most famous quote of John Calvin, I think, but our hearts are idol factories. We come into this world seeking idols. We come into this world seeking something else to worship, something else to give ourselves to besides God, anything but God. And everyone here, we are experts in making idols. And what's frustrating and annoying is that it's the best things in this world are the things that we most love to turn into idols, right? Relationships, um, work, family, uh, sex, money, power, our bodies. Those are all good things, but it's so easy for us for those things to become my salvation, they come, they come, in fact, to give our lives, these things that are created things, come to give our lives ultimate purpose. And our lives begin to revolve around them. Now, before you trusted in Jesus, if you're a believer here, before you trusted in Jesus, it was all idols all the time. 100% your life was all idols. Before I was a Christian, my life was 100% all idols all the time. And this is why James says, that friendship with the world is enmity with God, because 
He's not talking about friendship like loving the world. He's talking about friendship as in going along with the world because the world's gonna have millions and millions of ways that we can make idols out of the created things. But James says we cannot go along with them on this. That's why it's enmity, and we'll talk about it in a minute about why it, looks, why it is enmity, hostility to God. Um, when people like the Apostle John and James are talking, uh, when they use that word world, what they're talking about is the whole world that refuses to worship the one thing we were made to worship, God. It's the whole world that has is, that is decided we're not worshiping God, we're going to worship power. We're going to worship uh, political power. We are going to worship saving the environment. We are going to worship morality and being a good person. And here's what's tricky, and this blew my mind when I first heard this, thanks to Tim Keller, uh, but idols... This is blew my mind. Idols are not bad things. The idols themselves, they're not bad things in themselves. Idols are good, created things that we have elevated to become ultimate things. Idols are good things. Um, Paul puts it this way in Romans 1. I don't have it on the screen, but it's really easy. He says that all humans in general, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we have come to, listen, worship and serve creator, created things rather than the creator. We worship and serve the creature, the creatures, which everything's a creature, right? We come to serve the creatures rather than the creator. Paul, this is at heart what is wrong with us. Paul says that the first human, after Adam, after him, after he messed everything up, we are all born seeking some creation, some part of creation to worship and serve instead of God, the creator. And what did the creator create? He created good things, remember? It was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. We take all these good and very good things and we elevate them to this is going to be my salvation. We love to make good things into ultimate things. What's, notice here, <laughs> Christianity isn't stop doing bad things, start doing good things, stop doing bad things, start doing good things. Even good things that we do can be born out of self-serving idol worship. Even good things that we do are often born out of self-serving idol worship. Let me give an example. I'll give an example. Helping people, all right? Helping people is a good thing. We were made to help people. But what if it gets to the point where, for example, I need people to be dependent on me and need me or else I have no purpose in life. What if it gets to my helping gets to that point where if you don't, if you put up boundaries with me, I'm going to be really mad at you. If you put up boundaries with me and don't let me help you, then that, I'm going to have a grudge against you. We are not going to be good anymore. What does that expose? The idol of service. Even service and helping can become an idol. Some of the times that I get most like frustrated and bitter with my kids is when I have some, maybe you've experienced this too, if you have children or young people that you've, maybe this is going to ring true, but I have some kind of big plan that I made. We're going to have so much fun. We're going to go hiking. We're going to go kayaking. We're going to go to a, a city forum. We're going to do some, so much fun. And I prepare it. I'm looking forward to it. I pour so much into it and they hate it. <laughs> It's boring, they get in a fight, it's tiring, but it's just, for some, whatever, it's this big, it's this big poopy dumpster fire. 
this thing that I was looking forward to. If I'm angry at them, or if I yell at them, what does that show? I've taken a good thing, hanging out with my kids, uh, being a good dad, something like that, and I've made that an ultimate thing. And I know it because of these passions that reach out and try to hurt them. I've got these passions that are a war within me. I've idolized fun time. I've idolized being a good father. Those are all good things, right? And, but I've made it an ultimate thing. And nobody better get in my way. Yeah, and then the fun time gets really not fun after that. Or the not fun time gets really not fun after that, right? It just ruins everything. It ruins everything. And here's why, I, another reason. So, I, so idols are good things that we've made ultimate things. And here's another reason why idolatry is so poisonous. Um, here's why God hates it so much. First of all, can you see how insidious idolatry is? Can you see how it can affect everything? You, do you see how you can live your whole life, right? And you can look so good on the outside, right? Service, great dad, great whatever, great pe- uh, preacher, right? You can live your whole life looking so good on the outside, but in reality, it's trash to God because you're actually serving idols underneath it all. You're doing it for you. And then, let's go a little even worse. Um, notice in both the examples I gave of helping and you know, creating fun time, I am trampling people made in the image of God. I'm twisting them. I'm manipulating them. I am using them for me, for my service to my idol. I don't care about them. I'm, I'm going to use them so I can feel good about myself. I'm destroying God's world. I'm destroying these people. I'm destroying these relationships. I'm acting like his enemy. I'm acting like God's enemy. I'm doing the opposite of what he actually wants me to do. The opposite of what I was made for. James wants us in these opening verses to recognize that when we fight, when we quarrel, when we harbor murderous thoughts about someone in our hearts, this points to, you, this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity. If you're God's people, you're like, yay, an opportunity to, to be, become more like Jesus. This is an opportunity for us to find those places we, where we are not trusting in God, where we are trusting in idols instead, and we're acting like his enemy. We're ruining other people. We're ruining God's world. We're doing the opposite of what we were saved to do. There's an opportunity when we fight and we quarrel. We can be curious about. We'll talk about it in a minute. But there's good news for idolaters like you. Good news for idolaters like me. Look with me in verse 5 through 9. This is our second point. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now it kind of ends on a sound sad, but it's actually this is really good news. Look at me in verse 6. We'll jump in there. James has just exposed all the evil intentions of our hearts. Um, if you, you should be feeling, at this point, uh, completely helpless to our idols, because we are. But he gives more grace. Look at verse 6. He says that, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But despite our betrayal, 
despite our adultery and our unfaithfulness to him, he just keeps pouring more grace to us. Now, you may be a Christian who you found just yet, you're finding yet another idol. You've been a Christian for decades, and here's another idol. Uh, You may have never trusted in Jesus yet, but realize that your world is all idols all the time. But for all who are humble before him, he gives grace. He gives forgiveness of sins. He gives the favor. He gives the protection. He has the commitment to you. Everything that we're seeking in those idols is what he actually has for us, for free. He just gives it to us. Now, you may be wondering, when I read this, I was like, why the proud you know, he gives grace to the humble, but not to the proud. Why are they excluded? Well, grace is offered to the proud. Remember, grace is offered to the proud. Uh, remember Jesus in the Gospels, he's like, get on board, guys, all you hypocrites, all you Pharisees, all you self-righteous people, come on. What's the problem, though? They don't come. They don't want to come. They never come to the party, unless they become humble. But the proud never come to the party. They never ask for their sins to be forgiven. They never ask God to help them with their idols because they love their idols. The proud hold on to their idols. They say, ah, this is going to make me right. I can achieve, I can do, I can work. I'm going to be the best father, and that's going to save me. That's going to make other people think I'm cool, make other people think I'm great. I'm going to be the most helpful person ever. I'm going to show everybody how helpful I am, or how, you know, and that's going to save me me being a helpful person. I can find salvation in some other way that I can work for. My idols and I, we have this taken care of, the proud say. Thank you. But anything except, anything except give up all my self-salvation plans. Anything except trust that Jesus has me. He's going to care for me. And they'll do anything but that. That takes humility and being humbled. The proud never come, and grace is given to those who submit, those who humble themselves. Now, what do the humble do? I'm going to just look at one aspect of this as we look in our our second point we're in the middle of, repent to Jesus. What did the humble do? What does it look like, this humility? Well, first of all, when we say humble, what does it mean? The humble here, first of all, they don't make excuses for their sins. The humble confess their sins to Jesus because they know he has already forgiven them. And the humble aren't scared to talk about their sins. They aren't scared to, to realize their sins. They aren't scared of their sins. And what I mean by that is we are not scared to confess our sins. We are not scared to talk about our sins. We're not scared to talk about our sins with God and confess our sins to God because we know that they're forgiven in Jesus, that he has taken the punishment for them. And we are free to even investigate our sins, which is what James has been doing the first few verses here. It's the proud that are scared to talk about their sins. They're scared to confess their sins. They're, they're not going to confess their sins anyway, but they don't want to apologize for their sins. They don't want to think about their sins because sins mean guilt, and they have no way to atone for their sins. They have no way to atone for the guilt of what they've done in serving their idols, but we have our sins taken care of. We have the guilt of our sins taken care of, so we aren't scared to talk about them. What I mean by this is like, what is James doing here in the verse 3 verses when he's talking about looking inside of our hearts. He's, he wants, he's, he's investigating. He wants us to investigate what is going on in our hearts when we lash out in anger. Here's a great question that I love to ask myself when I realize that I've done this or have this happening inside of me. If I didn't lash out, if I didn't start this argument, if I didn't push back so hard on what you said to me, 
If I didn't defend myself and push and, and attack you or criticize you, what am I afraid would have happened if I didn't do that? For example, if I didn't yell at the kids, um, this twisting this twisted uh, thinking goes. Like, if I didn't yell at my kids, for example, then they would continue to be miserable on this fun adventure that I'm having, and I would be reminded constantly, as they're miserable, that I'm a bad father, that I'm terrible at making fun, that we can't have this fun time together, and it's just unbearable to me, and I, that's what I'm worried about. So there, there's my idol, bingo. I think I'm, I want to be the best father ever. I want to be a fun, uh, have fun. I want to have this fun time with my kids. And that's a place where not only does Jesus forgive me, right, because I trust in him, that's not only a place where he forgives me, but it's also a place where he meets me to help me to grow in actually loving my children without having this uh, requirement on them that they make, they qualify me to be a good father, for example. One time a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we got into a little argument about something, and uh, she thought that I was being uh, critical of her, and when I, I wasn't, and I could tell that she was angry and that she was hurt, and I got annoyed. And I clapped back at her, why would you think that I'm criticizing you in this harsh, you know, angry tone, which was not really a question, right? I wasn't asking a question there, even though there was a question mark on the end. Um, and it did not make things better. Um, and later I asked myself, you know, what was I afraid would happen if I didn't push back on my wife here? And what I was, af- what I was afraid of, one of the things, was that I hate when my motives are being mischaracterized. And there's a part of me that feels really hurt when someone assumes that I have a bad motive when I don't. You can see how this like totally intersects with your story, with a lot of these idols. Totally intersects with your story. A lot of these idols, counseling is a good, if you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Counseling is a great, is a great option to help you to talk through this stuff. But I realized that I felt hurt and, uh, and I felt hurt by her that she was, I felt like she was assuming, I don't know what's happening, but I felt like she was assuming my motives and assuming I had bad motives, and that hurts my feelings, and I want to push that away. Now, did Jesus snap back on people when people, when they didn't understand him? Nobody understood Jesus, right? (laughs) Nobody understood him. Was he constantly going around, you don't understand me, why don't you understand me? No, he didn't. (laughs) That's, it's a good thing to want to be understood, but it's an idol when I want to, you know, hurt somebody else because they don't understand me. There's an idol there of wanting to be understood and I know it's an idol because I lashed out at the wife that I love. These are places where the humble can get curious. They want to submit it all to Jesus. They don't want to just push this under the rug. Oh, I said, uh, let's get rid of that and not think about it anymore, right? Uh, we don't push it under the rug. We expose it so it can be healed. Expose it to myself. Expose it to the people, my wife close to me. Expose it to Jesus that we can be healed. It's okay to think what needs to be mourned here. What do I need to apologize for? What do, I, what, what, do I need to, what do I need to change? We're not afraid. We're not afraid of those things anymore. Where are the places where I've used other people to make myself great? Um, I just gave a couple examples, but what would it look like maybe in your context, in your life, with the people in your life? When was the last time that you lashed out? When was the last time that you pushed back against something that somebody said? Um, I'm wondering if there's an idol that maybe is standing out that you could be curious about. Maybe for the first time, a place that no one else can get close to. Maybe this is a good test, maybe kind of for a different angle, but a good test of this is, what is something that if God were to take it away from me, I would turn my back on God? Is there anything in your life, your job, 
Is there um, a family member, somebody you love? If God were to take that person away, you would turn your back on him? Is there anything in your life that if God were to, your reputation, is there anything in your life that if God were to take it away, you would turn your back on God? Even good things. That is where God wants us. That's where God wants you to submit to him, to trust him. Not that idol. Whatever you name there, that's an idol. This comes down to trust. Who are you going to trust in? That's the big question of the Bible. The whole Bible is here's God saying, here's who I am, here's what I've done, trust me. The whole Bible, that's what it is. And it's all a question of trust. Are you going to trust in an idol? Are you going to trust in a thing? Are you going to trust in a person? Are you going to trust in a relationship to be your ultimate salvation, to save you, to keep you safe? Or is it going to be God? Is it going to be this God? He sent his son to live and die for you. Can we trust him? Or are we going to trust in something? And when we trust in something, inevitably, you're going to destroy your life. You're going to destroy the, anybody that's involved in an idol. You're going to destroy their lives as well. What happens when we humble ourselves before the Lord and not an idol? We talked about what, a little bit of what it looks like to repent to Jesus. What does it look like to reap his grace? Look, let's look at verse 10. This is our last short point. When we humble ourselves, he exalts us, and we reap his grace that he gives more and more and more of. When we humble ourselves before God, when we admit that we crave idols, when we admit that we cannot save ourselves, when we admit, like James and Jesus says, when we admit that, what James and Jesus says this in several places, he is going to lift you up. He's going to lift up the humble. He's going to forgive you, he forgives you. He is going to grow you. He is going to change you in great, amazing, beautiful ways. This is what it looks like to endure this trial of passions, this trial of passions for our idols. What does a life trusting in Jesus instead of idols look like? Let me just give one kind of point about this, maybe one thing that it looks like. It's a life of love, actual not fake, actual love and service for other people. Before, we used people. Before, we loved to use people to satisfy my idol. My children are an opportunity to feel and look like a good parent. In my eyes, in others' eyes, um, others being dependent on me makes my life valuable. I'm using them. Uh, another example, other people's bodies. They're a means of my own pleasure and feeling of being loved. I'm just using people for my own pleasure, of feeling accepted and wanted. I'm using other people. Um, school or work, right? They're so easily turned into idols. Or maybe your kid's school or work is not a means of serving the world, which is what those things are for, for serving the world around us. Instead, we suck all this meaning and purpose out and grades and accomplishment out of these things and suck it out of our children as well. So easy to do. And nobody better get in the way of it. This is the way, this is the life of idols. But when Jesus is the one that you've submitted to, then you can actually freely love other people for the first time. Because you're not a slave anymore. The spell has been lifted of your idols. One of the great benefits of seeking out our idols and turning to Jesus in those places where we find that they're idols, one of the great benefits 
is that you can finally forget about yourself and actually love other people. You can actually love other people for them, for their sake, to love them, not because you get anything out of it to serve an idol. That's one of the great gifts that he gives us is that we can actually love other people. And if you're like, the gift of loving other people, why, lame, why, why would I ever, who cares? You're probably not a Christian because, <laughs> because Christians are united to Jesus Christ and they, they love what he loves and they hate what he hates and he loves other people. He loves people and we are lovers of people, actual human beings, not just humanity in general, individual people that God has put into your life. One of the great gifts is that for now, for the first time, we can love others for their sake. Not because they give us anything, not because they make us look good, not because they make us feel good, not because they raise our status level. Here's one, like, this is a superpower that God gives us when we give up our idols. And we will finish this, we'll finish here. Um, what is the opposite of the opening image? The opening image is that James gives us, is all these people arguing and fighting and attacking others and hurting them with their words. What if one person entered this scene, and what if you entered a scene this week where it's either you or another person or you in a group? What if you entered this scene, somebody who's not enslaved or at least aware of your idols? What would, it, what would that look like? It would probably look a lot like Jesus, right? He, he was never enslaved by idols. He loved people he met. He knew exactly how to he knew exactly how to um, confront people in absolute love. What would that look like? You would move toward people in love. You, you could love lovable people like, you know, kids and people around you. You could love them well for the first time. And you can even love unlovable people, people that nobody likes, people that are so annoying because they're all idols all the time and they're just arguing with everybody and so defensive and, you know, criticism kills them and nobody likes to be around them. You can love those people. You've been loved while you were that person. So instead of hurting, wor hurling words of anger, we would, what James says in chapter three, this is what it would look like, be peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. CBC, this week, let's pause when you notice some place in your heart, when you know some place out here that shows that there's something in here wrong. Let's pause when we fight and quarrel and murder in our hearts, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to show us those idols so that we can trust Jesus in new ways, to love lovable people, finally, and to even love unlovable people. Let's pray. Father, as I just said, and as James points us to, would you show us those places where we, have, we are passionate about anything besides you, and passionate we think that things are going to save us, give us meaning, give us purpose that is not you. Would you show us those places so that we can repent and turn to Jesus and be forgiven and healed? And would you send us out this week uh, being able to love new people with this superpower you've given us, being able to love people in new crazy ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.